Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. There is for many people a kind of subtle aversion to the Bible or to religion uh, or how religion treats the Bible, we might say. Their perception is that the Bible actually is the cause of many of the problems in society and life. One recent author even published a book saying religion is killing us. Uh, For them, it's all about, uh, you know, if you talk about the Bible, if you talk about people's sin, if you talk about those kinds of things, if you talk about condemnation, this becomes the source of so much of the depression and so much of the angst, so much of the infighting, and so much of the, the, we might say, judgmentalism between different peoples. Or as another writer recently stated in an op-ed piece, quote, being told you're abominable can have deadly results, end quote. He was referencing the scripture. Growing up in church, he said all the talk he ever heard about the Bible almost killed him. Well, for many people, that's their perspective. Their perspective is that the problem is all these rules, all these regulations, whether it comes to us through the church, whether it comes to us through our parents, through our family, all these things laying heavy burdens on us are just driving us into the ground. And so for those kinds of people, the Bible or sermons or whatever is this cause of resentment and this cause of irritation. But if you were raised in a Jewish home, you were raised with a very different mindset. You were not taught that the Bible was a source of of death. You were taught that it was a source of life. In fact, this was fundamental to a, a Jewish person's worldview. The Bible, and particularly the Old Testament law, was the source of life. It was life giving. As one Jewish text known as the Damascus document, as it says, God instituted His covenant with Israel forever. His righteous laws, His reliable ways, and the desires of His will, which, if a man does them, he will live by them. His, he, 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 excuse me, he disclosed them, and, and they dug a well, yielding much water, and whoever spurns them shall not live. That was a reference, by the way, to Leviticus Chapter 18, verse 5, where you'll find the verse, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, that if a person does them, he shall live by them. This was the law in the mind of a Jew. This was the, the, the instrument of life. Do it, and you'll live. Paul will even bring this up later on in Romans chapter 10, verse 5. When we get there eventually, we'll hear him stating this basic Jewish supposition. Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This was their worldview. They secured eternal life for themselves by keeping the law, by living righteously according to it. It was not a source of death, it was a source of life. In another ancient work, a book called the Psalms of Solomon, it says, it says, the one who does righteousness stores up life for himself with the Lord. This is the way they thought. 
But if you've been reading with us or staying with us in the book of Romans, what you're hearing is a much different view. A much different view of the law, very different from the Jews, very different from even the way that Paul himself as a Jew was brought up to think. Very different, we might add, even from those who resent the law as something that's killing them. Different from all of those things. Romans 6, you remember, Paul had declared that we are not only free from sin because of faith in Jesus Christ, but he declared that we're even free from the law. Remember, he says in Romans 6.14, sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So you are free from sin and you're free from the law. That's his declaration. And even here in Romans chapter 7, remember back in verse 4, he actually says that we have died to the law. If you were with us two weeks ago, you remember Paul presented all of that to us in the analogy of a marriage. The first six verses of Romans 7, he basically compares uh, all of this uh, relationship to the law to, to, to our relationship with one another as spouses. And he talks about the potential disgrace it would be if a married woman were to leave her husband and run off and live with another man. She would be called an adulteress, he says. But if, if her first husband dies, then there's no disgrace in the woman leaving because her relationship with her previous husband has been formally ended by death. So if the believer, therefore... As he goes on to say, if the believer has died to the law, if their relationship to the law has come to an end in the same way, they are therefore free to be joined to another, that is to Christ. So there's no scandal, there's no disgrace if you leave your previous relationship to the law. So he declares that we're free. Free from our previous relationship by means of death. We've died to the law and we have ended that relationship that we had. But he doesn't leave it at that. He, he goes even further and he states that this not only happened, it was necessary. It had to happen if you have any hope of ever bearing fruit for God. Or another way to say that is this had to happen if you ever had any hope of having life. If you ever wanted to live, it had to come by, first of all, a death to the law, and second of all, being joined together with Christ. If you ever had any hope of bearing any real fruit for God while you, while you live. In fact, in Romans 7, 5, remember, he says, while we were alive in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, all of this, all of this would have come as a shock to a Jewish person. It would have come as a, a, a real uh, affront to their worldview because for them the law was everything. It was their hope, it was their boast, it was their means of life. And even here in, in the section we're looking at today from verse 7 through 13, you see this again down in verse 10. Paul says the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. That was his perspective as a Jew, as his perspective of every Jew. And now this law that was viewed as a source of life, 
These people are now hearing Paul say it actually brings death. Jews celebrated the law. They quoted verses like Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Like Isaiah 42, the Lord was pleased for His righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. One of their writers later on in the Mishnah would state this. He says, Moses received the Torah from Sinai and passed it on to Joshua and Joshua to the elders and the elders to the prophets and the prophets passed it on to the men of the great synagogue. And they said three things. Be deliberate in judgment, raise up many disciples, and make a fence around the law. End quote. So this was their perspective. Uh, this was their attitude. Guard the law. Guard the Torah. Put a, put a fence around it so that no one can assault it, so that no one can, can touch it. Cling to it as the source of your life. So for them to hear Paul now say that, that you can sever your relationship with the law in a completely legitimate and a completely um, non-scandalous way, for them to hear Paul say that not only is the law not a source of life, it is actually a source of death, it would have naturally aroused within all of them a, a defensive sort of a stance, a sort of a, 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 a call to arms, if you will, because they were hearing Paul say, they thought, that the law now had become a tool of sin, not a remedy for it. Well, Paul knows all this. He was a Jew. He was raised as a Jew. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was brought up hearing all these same things, raised under the law, raised under these same commitments, raised with these same sort of attitudes. And so he anticipates their objections. And in verse 7, he presents what have been most likely their response to everything he has said so far about the law. He says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin... In other words, I mean, if, if, if the law is killing, if I need to be severed from the law, if I, need to be, you know, if I need to die to the law, is that somehow saying that the law is bad? Is that somehow saying that God's Word is bad? Is that somehow saying that everything God revealed, we need to get as far away from it as possible? Is that what I'm saying about all of this? A Jew would have concluded that. Sounds to me, Paul, like you're saying the problem is the law. Sounds to me, Paul, like you're saying the the law is bad, like you're saying the law is sinful. You're saying the law is the problem, when all we've ever heard is the law is great and the law is glorious. Well, Paul doesn't want them to misunderstand. And what he wants to do in this section is clarify for them. The problem is not the law. The problem is you. The death doesn't come from the law. The death is in you. And so the law simply confirms what is already a reality. It simply brings to light what is already true about you. The law, in other words, is not sin. In fact, as Paul will go on to say, he'll ultimately come to his conclusion down in verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not sin. It's holy and it's good. That's Paul's conclusion. But to establish that conclusion, he wants to help us understand why we have to be separated from the law if we're ever to have hope of having life. 
And there are three good and godly reasons for this, three good and godly purposes that the law has as it relates to sin. Uh, Paul's going to give these to us to help us understand how the law operates against sin and for good, and yet still we have to be separated from it. A number of reasons, in other words, why the law isn't sinful, why it doesn't ultimately reflect sin, why it ultimately why it ultimately is holy and righteous, but also why it ultimately is not the answer to your sin. You see, they thought that the law was their means of life. Uh, to them, it, it seemed that Paul was saying that, no, the law is killing you. But says Paul's telling them, no, it's not. The law is not killing you. You're already dead. You're already dead. The law is just pointing it out. It's just pointing it out. So he demonstrates this to us in these three functions of the law. The law that comes to us with so much godly usefulness. But that usefulness isn't providing life. It's simply pointing out what is already true. And you'll see this as he begins there in verse 7. The first function of the law that he helps us to understand is that law clarifies sin. It clarifies sin. He says, uh, is the law sinful? By no means. Why? Because yet, uh, he says, if I, I would not have known, or had it not been for the law, he says, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law makes your sin obvious. The law makes your sin clear. That's the point. It clarifies what it is. Because we all have a tendency to want to resist calling sin, sin. We all have a tendency to want to resist calling what we sometimes might label as our mistakes or our dysfunctions, sometimes even our disease or whatever it might be. We, might, we all have this sort of natural propensity to want to downplay that, to not want to label that as sin. And yet we have all of this destruction in our lives, anxiety in our hearts, feelings of shame over the way that we've behaved or the way things have turned out for us. We've, we, we look around and relationships in our lives are destroyed. We're, we're estranged from our parents or from our children or from our co-workers. And we see the destruction and we see the damage, but we won't want to label it for what it is. We want to call it something else. And so we resist identifying those things which are destroying our relationships. We resist wanting to identify that as sin. But what the law does is it comes in and it makes utterly clear what those factors are which are bringing about the destruction. It makes clear so that we can define those actions properly as sinful. Paul, by the way, has already kind of introduced this idea throughout the book of Romans. He says back in chapter 3, he made it clear that the law's purpose wasn't to establish our righteousness. It wasn't to give us life. 
but to reveal unrighteousness so that he says there in verse 20 of chapter 3, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Or he comes back later in Romans 4 verse 15, he told us the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, without law, we wouldn't have any definition of transgression. We wouldn't have any definition of sin. Or then in Romans chapter 5, he says, Sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Sin isn't counted. It isn't imputed when there's no law. Law is necessary for the sake of establishing transgression. So if there's no law, there's no violation. Or another way to say this is God is not going to judge you for things you do when you didn't know. When you didn't know that they were wrong. God's going to judge you by what you do know. You remember Paul established this back in chapter 2. We all sort of spent some time thinking about that as Paul established talking about the pagan Gentiles who do not have the law. And what he told us is that although they do not have the law, they demonstrate the work of the law written on their hearts. They show the work of the law by instinctively doing things which the law requires and demonstrating their innate knowledge of it. Paul's not suggesting they do everything. He's not saying that they constructed a temple or, or, or gave sacrifices or did every single thing revealed in the Old Testament Mosaic law. He's not suggesting that they were, uh, uh, although they were not Jewish, they were all uh, exactly replicating all of the ethical and moral codes that Jews follow. But he is suggesting That every one of them, every pagan person on the face of the earth who doesn't have the law, they adopt some of it. They reflect it, at least in part, in the moral codes that they adopt. Whether that's a moral code that's presented in their false religion, whether that's a moral code that's presented in their secular philosophy, whether that's a moral code presented simply in their governmental laws, whatever it might be. And in all those ways... Every one of these people demonstrates some level, we might say, of ideals or of standards. And when they do that, even if they're not directly derived from a reading of Scripture, they demonstrate some level of consciousness of the law. Every known culture has some definition, for example, of marriage, some definition of commitment between a man and a woman. Every culture has some definition of a just versus an unjust killing. Every culture has some definition of protection for private property. And so they have, by definition, a, a, a rule of an adulterer and of a murderer and of a thief. And the question is, where does all that come from? Paul says it was because of the work of the law written on their hearts. Now, he's careful. He's not saying the law was written on their hearts. He says the work of the law, meaning conviction. It wasn't the full law. He's not, he doesn't want to confuse the fact. For example, in the New Covenant, it says the Holy Spirit's going to come and write God's law on our hearts. He's not suggesting that these people have that sort of internal effect going on in their life. He's talking about the work of the law. The work of the law, which is conviction. When people 
uh, uh, when people do not have a specific, if you will, law of God that they have in the Bible, yet they still demonstrate these same sort of ideals by establishing even those ideals, they can't live up to them. By establishing even those standards, they can't live up to them. And by failing to live up to even their own low standards, they demonstrate the sin of their heart. They demonstrate conviction. And what Paul told us back there was that was sufficient proof for God to judge them. He judges them by what they know, not by what they don't know. That's what he meant whenever he said they they become a law unto themselves. They become a law to themselves. And so this is the principle. God judges all men not by what they haven't heard, but by by what they have heard. He judges them not by what they don't know, but by what they do know. And that is sufficient enough for him to punish, to judge, to condemn sinners. So the law doesn't the law doesn't come along and, and create sin. It's not sinful. That's what Paul's saying here. It clarifies. It clarifies what's already inside of us. Sin is there. Destruction and death are there. We don't always understand it to be sinful. It's there. You might be living in a pagan society and suffering all the consequences of all your sinful actions. You might be living in an, in an unbiblical society and you might be suffering all those, all those uh, destructive habits and you, name it, you, you never realize what it is that's causing it all. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the summer heat. We know sometimes that it's hot. We know it's very hot. We know that it's sapping our energy. We know it's creating a thirst. We feel the effects of the heat. We don't need a thermometer. We don't always have a thermometer, I should say, to tell us how hot it is. Well, God's law is the thermometer. It comes into your life and it shows you what's already happening in your life and it clarifies, it clarifies the sin that's already there. As Paul said in Romans 5, sin was in the world, but it wasn't imputed until there's a law. And when there's some standard, that's when it's imputed. And the example Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 7 is coveting. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul's saying, he's not saying I wouldn't have coveted. He's not saying that I wouldn't have gone around wanting and desiring all these things that belong to other people. He's not saying that he, he wouldn't have understood discontentment. He wouldn't have gone around constantly comparing what he has versus what other people have. And, and he wouldn't have constantly had this yearning that he had their things instead. He's not suggesting that that wouldn't have been there. What he's saying is he wouldn't have fully understood that it was wrong as he did whenever the law came in and said, you shall not covet. But the law came in and it declares you shall not covet. And when, he, Paul says, when I understood that, I was guilty. Which, by the way, means that the law is a powerful grace in your life. It's a powerful grace in your life. It's an incredible mercy. You know, if you have some terminal disease 
The doctors are able to identify that so that you can be treated. What are you? You are grateful. You're grateful. You don't get angry at the MRI machine because it showed some illness inside of you. No, you're grateful for the technology that might show you what's going on deep inside of you so that something can be done about it. The law is a mercy. The rules and the regulations are a grace. To demonstrate your unbelief and your hard-heartedness to God because it is that that's killing you. It is that that's bringing about your condemnation. All of this is the clarifying influence of the law, which brings us really to the second function of the law then that that, that highlights its, its goodness and shows its holiness. The law not only brings clarity, but it brings culpability. It brings culpability. It establishes, as we've already hinted at, liability and guilt. Paul says in verse 8, sin, he says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He's not saying that sin didn't exist. He's not saying that sin wasn't a part of who he was. That's not what he means when he says sin lies dead. He's not even saying that sin was not active or sin was somehow activated by the law. That's not what he's saying. But sin is dead in the sense that it isn't perceived as a threat. It isn't perceived as an enemy. So where the law doesn't exist, or even where it's not understood, people, they're living without a sense of the danger, without a sense of the death that is living inside of them. They sort of go through life without this notion, without this sense that they have this infection going on in their hearts. You know, AIDS is like that, right? Someone can be infected with AIDS and they can go for years without understanding what is constantly taking place at the most minute level of RNA and DNA in the cells of their blood. But they're dying without any outward symptoms or knowledge. This is what the law does, though. This is what the law does. It, it's not only that it makes the infection obvious, it makes it acute, or, or we might even say it makes it inexcusable. It's one thing to do something in ignorance, but then once someone has come and told you explicitly that something is wrong, to continue to do that makes it all the more clear where it comes from. All the more clear that it comes from a rebellious and stubborn heart. And so this is what Paul's saying. Sin seized the opportunity through the commandment. And he pictures sin sort of as an active enemy, an active destroyer, and it's looking for whatever opportunity it can to do the most damage, to bring the most amount of death. And so this is what it does through the commandment. It produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Again, the covetousness was already there, but the commandment just made it inexcusable. In fact, the word produce, Katargezomai is the word. It comes from really the root word ergo, which is the word to do something or to work or to make something. And so it worked or established or it made covetousness where before it wasn't covetousness. 
Or it made covetousness in the sense that it established the guilt and the liability through the commandment. That's what he's saying. Paul's not suggesting that if law had never come, he would have been some virtuous, you know, pagan noble. That idea doesn't exist in the Scripture. Yeah, I'd never, you, you won't find in the Scripture any idea that the law in itself is stoking sin. In fact, you read Romans chapter 1, and people without the law were quite sinful. They didn't need the law to make them sinful. That's not the idea. What Paul's saying here is that he's not saying I was nominally sinful before. I had a very virtuous heart. Then the law came in and made me more sinful. The idea is not that the the commandment creates the sin, but that creates the culpability. It creates more guilt. It increases the guilt. The law becomes a powerful tool through which sin can work so that Paul can say in Corinthians, the sting of, se- of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. The law is what gives sin its power to kill. This, by the way, is basically what Paul restates down in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, that is through the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Sin was shown to be sin. Sin became sinful beyond measure or sin became more wrong when I was told that something was wrong. Sin was more wrong than when I was told something was wrong. You know, you might be going through life and and sort of innocently doing something, and then one day your wife pulls you aside and says, you know what, that's very inconsiderate. And you might get a pass perhaps before, but now that she's told you that, you know the look. Now there's no excuse. Now there's no excuse. The law produced death. How did it produce it? By showing sin to be sin and giving you even less excuse. This, by the way, is exactly what Jesus tried to communicate to the Jews in his own day whenever he came along to Capernaum where he had done most of his teaching and most of his works. And he says to them, Woe to you, Capernaum. You would be exalted to heaven, he says, you'll be brought down to hell. Why? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained with us even until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Is that because Sodom was not sinful? By no means. Is that because maybe there was less idolatry in Sodom? By no means. It's the fact that Israel had received more light. They had received more truth. And so to whom much is given, much will be required. This is what Paul is explaining. Sin became increasingly sinful now. Now there was no excuse. Now I was shown 
to be as guilty as I really was. It was sinful beyond measure. It seized opportunity through the commandment to log all kinds of accusations, all kinds of instances of covetousness in my life where before I was unaware of it, now it was all over the place. Which leads to the third function of the law that shows, Paul says, its goodness. The law isn't sinful, it's holy and righteous because because it condemns sin. Because it condemns sin. He says in verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the law, excuse me, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Paul says, I was once alive. I I once, he says, the very commandment that promised me life. I was living under the illusion that I had life. This is earlier, remember what he said, every Jew believed. That was Paul himself. That was every view of uh, every Jew's view of the law. They were alive. The, the, the law promised them life. I was once alive without the law. You say, well, how can Paul say he was alive without the law? That's a contradiction. It was the law that, that gave him the confidence he was alive. It was the law that he says promised him life. How could you be alive then without the law? You're telling me you're trusting in the law for life. How could you be alive without it? Not only that, I mean, how could he ever say he ever lived without the law? He was raised as a Jew from his mother's knee. He would have been taught the Torah. Well, verse 11 explains all of that. Sin, through the commandment, deceived me. It deceived me. I had the law... And I thought the law was bringing me life, but it was bringing me death. So I had what I thought was the law, but it was a deceptive view of the law. Or at least I had what I thought was life through the law, but it was a misunderstanding of the law. There was a deceptive understanding of the law. Sin was deceiving me because it was not only uh, uh, generating all this covetousness in me, but it was also deceiving me with self-righteousness. So the law didn't look like an enemy. The law didn't look like an instrument of death. It looked like a source of life. It was, it was through deception, he says. But when a true understanding of the law came, when a true understanding of the commandment came, he says in verse 9, Nine, sin came alive and I died. See, he thought sin was subdued. He thought sin was dead or close to dead in his life. He lived under this impression that he was a fairly good person. He went through life maybe thinking other people had messed up and other people had their problems, but he generally was an honest and decent person. He didn't realize that there was this powerful force inside of him. He thought it was dead. But then he understood the law. He finally listened to it. It said you shouldn't lie. 
It says you shouldn't exaggerate. You shouldn't take uh, uh, and give half-truths. You shouldn't twist things, spin things. It says you shouldn't covet. You ought to be content with what you have. You shouldn't be jealous of other people. You shouldn't be always complaining that you're passed over and passed by and deserve more and all these other things that come from a covetous heart. It says you shouldn't be angry. That's what Jesus says is equivalent to murder. You see someone, you're angry with them in your heart, you're like a murderer. You have murderous thoughts in your heart. It says you shouldn't be lustful. Jesus says that's, a, that's adultery in your heart. It may, not have given, it may not have given manifestation in outer works, but it shows what's in your heart. And Paul says, I started to listen to the law. And the law suddenly became, for me, the truth about who I am. It, it was bringing now, not life, it was exposing death. It didn't make me righteous. It didn't make me holy. It wasn't doing all the things I thought it did previously. It doesn't have the power to do that. It can't do that because it can't change my heart. All it can do is reveal it. All it can do is show it. But that became a mercy. That became a grace. Because it's demonstrating the infectious death that was already inside of Paul. That's a grace in your life, by the way. So that you can see your sin, so that you can see your death, so that you can see your need for salvation. That's a mercy in your life so that you can find salvation in Christ. This is the message of the Scripture. This is the message of the Gospel. This is the message of Romans. Life doesn't come by law. Life doesn't come by putting on religious deeds and getting serious about religion. Life doesn't come from anything inside of you because you don't have it. You're dead inside. It only comes from one place. Through Jesus Christ by faith. As Paul said at the opening of the book of Romans, the righteous, the just, they live. They have life by faith. If you're here today and you You've thought about the law in any of these ways, these erroneous ways. You thought the law was somehow your enemy, and you thought somehow that you needed to avoid it, and somehow it was the cause of all your problems. And so you're staying away from church, you're staying away from religion, you're staying away from religious people. The law is not the problem, it's holy and righteous and good. You are. Or if you're here today and you thought the law was going to be your salvation, you're going to start doing all the things that religious people do and somehow it's going to turn your life around. The law can't do that. All the law can do is show you how wicked and evil your heart is. The only thing that is your hope is salvation through Christ by faith. And our challenge to you today is when we close in a word of prayer here in a moment, that you wouldn't leave here today without believing in Him. Believing that He's the Son of God sent by God into the world to pay the penalty for your sins, raised on the third day as a sign of His victory over them. Well, let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this time, thankful for the Word. 
It comes to us as certainly the the gavel of judgment against us. It comes showing the full filth of our heart and mind. It comes exposing and making us culpable. But even that, Lord, we understand as a mercy. It is that instrument that you, the great physician, use to help us see the depth of our disease. But only you can cure us, Lord. Only you can save us. And so we thank you through Jesus Christ that you do that. We thank you for the cleansing. We thank you for the life that he brings. And we bless you in Christ's name. Amen.